This episode of The Zealous Podcast is sponsored by Perform Better. Perform Better is the leader in functional training by supplying innovative products and top-notch education to trainers, coaches, and therapists. Check out the brand new Perform Better app designed for professionals who want to stay on top of their game. This free app features education from the world's best. You'll learn from industry leaders including Mike Boyle, Gray Cook, Sue Falzoni, Charlie Weincroft, and many more. Topics range from strength and conditioning, program design, nutrition, business, and marketing. Just go to performbetter.com. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Zealous Podcast. And I don't know if you're watching along with me, but here in Santa Cruz, you know, water sports are part of just being here and living and being a resident, whether it's surfing and paddling or sailing. In this case, the America's Cup happened in mid-March and Emirates team New Zealand took it once again and maintained their championship title of America's Cup winners against the Prada Pirelli team of, of Italy. And it was an amazing, amazing kind of race. So much with uh, the the boat designs that have gone through the, the last few years. Love to talk a little bit about that. However, I'm going to be talking strength conditioning with a guy that trained Team New Zealand. His name is Dr. Adam Story, and he has quite a pro prolific background in strength and conditioning, whether it's Olympic weightlifting coach, whether it's sprint canoeing, race canoeing, whether it's rugby. I mean, he runs the gamut and he is the one that's behind creating the human machinery that won the America's Cup. So Dr. Story, Adam, welcome onto the show. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So first, I want to know if you don't mind sharing, you were all about Olympic weightlifting and I'd love to get a little bit more background there, but then there was rugby. And, and rugby and training Olympic weightlifters, and then comes the America's Cup. What, how did that all happen? It, it's not like, you know, chocolate and peanut butter mixing together with <laughs> Olympic weightlifting and, and sailing. But yeah, I, as far as I know, barbells don't do well on board boats. So how did that happen? Uh, yeah, no, yeah. <clears throat> you did right there, Rocky. So um, I guess originally, yeah, weightlifting background, as you mentioned, and that was... Um, yeah, as a coach for the New Zealand weightlifting team and yeah really really great opportunity for me like went to two Olympic Games and two Commonwealth Games um, yeah as a result of that and I guess that, that was always my passion from a young a young kid to, to watch these Olympic athletes and um, it always fascinated me obviously the dedication it takes to get to an Olympic Games but it, equally I was always uh, fascinated with you know what was happening behind the scenes in terms of coaching and support staff and all that kind of work to try and get these athletes or teams to those events so yeah that, that was definitely the um the cornerstone of my life for a, a long period of time and i guess with the the nature of being a, a strength and power based um sport then i'd often do um quite a bit of contracting uh, contracting work to different uh teams mainly rugby teams throughout uh, new zealand and, and um then after the rio olympics i actually you know, being a Kiwi, we're absolutely mad about rugby. Um, yeah, decided to, to really, I guess, test myself in that, that team sport environment. And I jumped across, uh, so I hung my coach's head up and jumped across to become a sports science manager and um, assistant trainer for the Blues uh, Super Rugby team here. Um, and that was great. I mean, we had a number of really fantastic All Blacks within that environment. So 
again, for, uh, for me to not only learn um, going from an individual to a team sport, athlete, uh, team-based um, environment, that was huge. But then I, I was very privileged to be able to learn from, um, I guess, some of the best, you know, being around these fantastic uh, all-black um, athletes. And yeah, and I guess uh, being a New Zealander, the other, other crazy thing that we're, as a nation, we're mad about is uh, sailing, and in particular, the America's Cup. It's... Um, I guess the Rugby World Cup and the America's Cup are the two cups that really unite um, us as a nation. And yeah, it was uh, a very interesting opportunity that came up um, a couple of years ago when yeah, one of my colleagues uh, you know, asked if I'd like to join him, join him on board with uh, Emirates Team New Zealand as, as part of the physical conditioning team. And yeah, I mean, it was for me, I'm, I'm not from a sailing background, but um, as I mentioned, being a Kiwi, like we we grew up uh, watching the America's Cup, and yeah, so it was a, it was an easy answer for me to to get amongst it. So I'm getting a sense that you're a little <coughs> bit younger than me, and I'm wondering how old were you when New Zealand finally took the cup away from America after I think it was 123 years running yeah. that America had won the cup. It was, yeah, good, was it good 86? It was, um, 95 we actually we actually won it for the uh the first time so around 1986 was when new zealand first started uh competing in the america's oh. cup and yeah i can definitely definitely remember watching those early editions and yeah they had the likes of dennis connor and he was such a such a character so yeah 95 i when we won it i would have been uh best 13 going on 14 years old and um yeah, it's a quite a weird thing. Like I've always been fascinated with sport as a kid. So just one of my little things I do is I always collect newspaper articles of um, all the amazing things that happened. And I've actually still got the original newspaper from 1995 when we won the America's Cup. So it's got the, the old team on the front page. So yeah, I pulled that out the, the other day um, to, show, to show my children. And it was just quite a surreal experience. Um, to sort of come full circle because back in 1995, I was just a, a, a screaming fan, never, ever, ever thought I'd be involved in an America's Cup campaign, let alone a, a winning one for New Zealand on home soil. So it was, it was very cool. Truly surreal, I imagine. You just mentioned something that I, I don't really think about that often, but you, you just shed light on being a coach for a team versus individual competitions such as weightlifting or, or perhaps oh, gymnastics or, or even skiing and snowboarding, right? These are all individual kind of pursuits and competitions, but it's a different philosophy of mentality and, and therefore it's got to be a different coaching approach. So can, can you kind of, in, in short, how do you sum up the difference between coaching the individual versus coaching a team? That's a really good question, Rocky. Um, I think a lot of people can sort of glaze over that fact, but they are two completely different beasts. Um, I guess with the, the the individual athlete, I mean, the level of detail um, you can get down to from uh, not only a, a planning periodization point of view or, or data analytics is phenomenal. Um, the level of relationship that you can get to with those athletes, again, is just out of this world. Like some of my athletes which I coached many 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 moons ago when they were young youth lifters I'm still very very um, good friends with them and, and part of their lives and they're part of my lives 
uh, team sport, just by the nature of it, um, you know, there's so many moving parts, you know, on, on game day in rugby, you've got a, a squad of 23 players, but I mean, your wider squad throughout the season's 38 players, um, which is small comparison to other, other sports like NFL, but um, you know, that, that's 38 individuals that you've got to somehow build a relationship with across the course of a season. There's a lot going on. You've got a coaching team, which is massive as well. So I guess you need to be, the skill sets are really different in teams. You need to be able to manage a lot of moving parts quickly, but also do um, a good job without going into too much of a, a in-depth approach or else you're just going to get um, lost in the weeds, as we'd say here. Yes. Now, the team that was Emirates New Zealand, uh, or yes, Emirates team New Zealand that, that just won the cup with you, the, the team was comprised of a variety of, of athletes from various backgrounds, as I recall. I mean, there were actually some rugby players, I believe, and maybe some, some cyclists, some, some competitive cyclists. And you had yourself quite a medley of athletes that come together on board this boat. How did that come about? Were you in the selection process or did they say, here's the team, you're, it, you're in charge of strength conditioning? Yeah, another great question, Mark. We, we had an absolute rat pack of a bunch. Um, <laughs> you know, and saying that, the, the statistic which still blows my mind is, you know, we had a crew of 11 sailors on or 11 team members on board. Out of that uh, crew of 11, we had seven Olympic medalists and 35 world titles amongst those 11, 11 individuals. And they were from different sports, as you mentioned, like we had um, <clears throat> Joseph Sullivan, the Olympic gold medalist in rowing from the 2012 London Olympics. We had Simon van Velthoven, who was uh, Olympic bronze medalist in track cycling, again, from the London Olympics. We had Steve Ferguson, who was uh, a double Olympian in swimming and kayaking, jump across. We had uh, Marius van der Poel, who was um, a member of the New Zealand army jump across as well so you know those, those examples of four guys there had no sailing experience whatsoever going into it um three of the four guys i mentioned or two of the four guys i mentioned simon and joe had previously done a campaign in bermuda um yeah so they had some experience from that but again not originally sailors and yeah when we started the campaign we did go through a, a trial process so um as you can imagine you know, a lot of people would love to throw their, their hat into the ring and say, hey, I want to give, uh, give it a crack to be a grinder. Um, but we were very selective around who approached us and, and who we approached. Um, <clears throat> and then once we had a, a group of trialists, so to speak, um, which again, were, were quite select individuals, uh, we then ran them through a series of, of tests just to see, you know, one, can they even hit some of these these power outputs that the design team were at the time estimating would be required um, to get these AC75s to fly. And two, um, could they even possibly handle some of the training sessions that we were we were going to be putting them through? So it, it just wasn't a sort of one flash in the pan. You've, you've got through the trials you're in kind of thing. We were, we were looking at it from a long-term perspective as well. That's just incredible to have neophytes in the world of sailing come in and 
and take the world championship. That's that's just remarkable. Now you speak of grinders, right? And then there's there's trimmers, there's the helmsman, there's the the navigator. There's so many different roles on board. However, they all have different demands, whether we're speaking of physical or mental. And therefore, I'm kind of curious more than that about the programs that you designed. Were they position specific? Were they individualized? How was it that you started creating a program on, on a sport that you were familiar with from a spectator perspective? Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. So, um, yeah, as I mentioned, I work, worked alongside uh, one of my colleagues, so Dr. Dan Plews, and he, he's he got a, f- a phenomenal background. I mean, Dan, um, you know, has won the, the Kona Ironman and the, and the, um, and he's set a course record as well. So he's, from an endurance point of view, an absolute weapon of a man. And um, yeah, so I was coming from the strength and power perspective as well. So we, we had like a really good blend of, of uh, experience going into that campaign. But again, Dan, much more like myself, we, he wasn't from a sailing background as well. So it was a very steep learning curve for, for both of us. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I guess, as, as you mentioned, the contrasting nature of the program is very true. Like initially we, we had an idea of what the demands of, the, of our first boat were gonna be. Um, and so our grinders basically, they went through an extensive phase of, of a huge endurance block initially to, to build them up. Um, for some of the guys just working with that monotony of, of upper body grinding was just something foreign to them. So um, developing strength endurance uh, for the upper body was just a huge, a huge factor. Um, some of the the trialists had initially thought that we were after the strongest individuals, like a, a one RM bench press and bench pull would be the most differentiating or critical factor. But in reality, it's the ability to, as said, strength endurance, which is that painful spectrum where you're still working at a moderate to high intensity, but for long periods of time, that's what we were after. Um, threshold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it was interesting from our, our first boat to the, the boat that you witnessed or watched in the America's Cup, um, the demands from boat one to boat two became quite different as well. In what first, Yeah, well, our first, first boat, it was, um, I guess, you know, the lads were describing it as being a lot more sort of threshold-based kind of work, like, um, you know, some of our key sessions, for example, were like 10 by three minute efforts at, at a maximum maintainable power or a, or a threshold heart rate. Um, and those types of sh- sessions kind of correlate, correlated pretty well to some of the demands that they were seeing on boat one. And then in boat two, um, what they found is that the, the, the strength and power side of it became a lot more important. Um, one of the really good analogies that one of the lads um, said to me was that it's almost like you try and jump on a bench press uh, and do like a, a 2RM bench press and then straight away you've got to jump, jump to the floor and do as many explosive clap press-ups as you can in a row and then straight away you're back onto the, the two RM bench press oh. and then back to the explosive press ups and that's that's happening across the course of a 25 to 30 minute race um yeah so that that was completely uh, a new thing so you know something like yeah, your power your power endurance as opposed to just straight strength endurance became a, a key training focus for us 
it, it, it's just so fascinating. I, I was thinking, of course, that the race was going to be a little bit shorter, but you actually include pre-race of positioning and getting to the line right at the, the starting gun when, when the timer goes off. And that in itself is tremendous amount of effort on the part of the team, just tacking back and forth and being in the proper spot right at the start line. I mean, the race is already actually going before it officially begins. I, I hadn't considered that. So how is it, uh, and I'm, I don't know if this makes any difference between boat designs, because for those listening, if you're not familiar with the America's Cup, the winning team gets to design the, the, the boat with the specs for the next America's Cup to try and maintain their title. And only one team in the world will be challenging them. So what was really interesting is like Larry Ellison, uh, when the cup was in San Francisco Bay, which was right up the road from here, uh, he had a, I think it was a tri or a catamaran with, mm -hmm. with a completely different design. You guys went back to Monohull with these two hydrofoils. I think they're like 1.2 tons or so on this, on this uh, almost hydraulic system that was mechanized to drop a hydrofoil into the water so that the entire hull will come out, leaving very little drag. And, and the, the boat itself was reaching speed somewhere between 40 to 50 knots. Just, just it's mind boggling. And to see them do these cornerings around the buoys and redirect was just so almost surreal in itself to see. So you're, you are dealing with the state of the art technology, state of the art equipment, and you're getting imperfect humans to be as state of the art as possible. So. For, for those who just think that, oh, yeah, we're just going to go in and work out, and it, it's way beyond that. I just, I, I can't believe that you have achieved what you have with the Motley crew that <laughs> won, really. So as I'm watching your some of your training videos, you're, you're using upper body ergometers. And for those listening, again, it's kind of like a bicycle pedals, but for the arms. So it's a circular mm -hmm. action. Arms are moving in opposite directions, but in the same, at, at the same time. And, or I would say one is alternating with the other, but it's, it's very much a grinder, just like they would have on board the boat. And these guys are cranking it out. What, what kind of routines did you do with those upper body ergometers for the team? Yeah, so, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty full on training structure. And, um, you know, the guys, the guys would be training six days a week, uh, typically around two sessions, two sessions per day. Um, wow during, I guess, and again, that, that's bearing in mind uh, different phases of the year. So as soon as the guys got in the big big sailing blocks, um, yeah, I mean, that that was really hard to manage the training. And I guess that was a, a massive learning curve for for Dan and I. Like originally we had, we had come from sports where, I mean, Dan, Dan's background, as I mentioned, um, Ironman, but then he spent um, an amazing amount of time at New Zealand rowing and was was highly influential during the, uh, the London Olympics uh, campaign. Um, so again, is, we're coming from sports where, you know, the training structure is really regimented. We know when they're on the water, when they're coming off the water, when we can do training. With the sailing environments, it's different. Like, um, you know, it's weather dependent. When they go sailing, they go sailing and they'll be out there for anywhere between six to seven hours on the water. Um, so some days we had these, these amazing training sessions planned and then we had to bin them because, you know, on water, obviously, um, and rightfully so, takes priority. Um, and then some days, you know, we 
and again different for something like rowing or, or kayaking where once you're on the water you've got an idea of what the session plan is going to be like whether it's like 10 by 1k efforts or something like that um with the sailors we you can't really get a gauge on that um you know you get a, a change in the breeze out there and it goes from being a relatively you know seemingly easy should be an easy day to being extremely taxing on the lads so again that can really change the the structure of the week but uh when we weren't in those those heavy sailing periods um as i mentioned yeah typically two times uh two sessions per day so it'd either be a, a gym session a weight space session in the morning um and then a grind in the afternoon or vice versa and and those grind sessions would be a combination of um either a lot of endurance based work so the endurance grinds could be anywhere up to you know between 60 to typically two hours on the on the grinder which is um yeah testament to the the boys uh mental tenacity to stay on those handles for two hours um or a threshold threshold based session which is is more shorter but obviously working at that higher intensity with with repeat efforts um in between so yeah it was tough and i guess what is is really really unique in that environment is i mean a lot of athletes around the world train two three times a day that that's that's routine but um what these these boys had to do or these men had to do is essentially they had to work a full-time job in the in the boat shed in between training sessions as well and that's just part of the team new zealand ethos and and i've often wondered if that's the case with the other syndicates and i mean they, these boys are having to do some pretty hard uh, manual labor tasks often throughout the day so you know they'd get thrashed in the morning in the gym um get thrashed during the day in, in the workshop and then try and come back in the afternoon to do another training session so so when yeah, it came yeah. down to having two races a day that was almost uh that was nothing compared to what they were training mate 100 like um exactly right like the the boys literally said now now we're into the easy stuff um <laughs> yeah which is not often the case like you know some athletes once they get to the point in the comp competition that that's where it's the middle hit or the rubber hits the road but these guys said yeah racing's racing's easy we're we're out there for a few hours we're seven hours we don't have to work as much during the day because the boat's already you can't modify the boat too much more <laughs> you know what i mean so yeah oh okay you have a phd however it is in philosophy as a, if i'm correct is that right uh yeah no no yeah so uh yeah phd i guess by default as a doctor of philosophy regardless of your subject title which is which is a weird one so i did my phd in uh sporting exercise science so exercise physiology ah okay because i was yeah. i was thinking that well okay well how do you take the what you've learned in philosophy and apply it but it's a different uh, beast altogether it's just yeah. a, the way in which they they the terminology i get it yeah so, it's a weird one no no not, not at all now now i understand <laughs> So you are also at this time training the canoe racing team for the Olympics, the women's and men, or is it just women's? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm national lead of SNC for yeah, canoe racing New Zealand. So um, yeah, I have, have been put into the men's program, but they, they're based um, uh, away from Auckland. So they're in a, a place called Karapiro. So uh, by default, I primarily work hands-on um, with the women's the, the women's team, which is based here at our, our National High Performance Center. And so what is the carryover between training the America's Cup sailors and racing canoeists? Is there? Obviously, yeah. it's, it's water-based, but aside from that. 
Yeah, actually a great question and um, surprisingly a lot. So um, yeah, as I mentioned, like Steve, Steve Ferguson, one of our grinders, he was, um, yeah, three, he's been to three Olympics. So one as a swimmer and two as a kayaker. So when he um, came to trial for us and, and his old man, Ian Ferguson, or his dad, Ian Ferguson, is, is our New Zealand's greatest Olympian, um, multiple uh, Olympic gold medalists for, for kayaking. So Steve's pedigree is very, you know, he comes from good stock. Um, but, you know, one of his initial comments was when he jumped on the, the grinders was he, was he was figuring out the technique of being a, being on the handles and he said you know it is very similar to paddling you know it's you've, you've just got to you know get that rotation happening from the trunk you can't rely on just using your arms you'll completely blow out um yeah so there is a lot of transference over and uh i've even had the girls the kayak girls come down to base and and give the the grinders um grinding machines a bit of a blat to see how they go as well so and how did that work uh yeah they they got a bit of a rude awakening to that. Um, so it, it is interesting. And, and actually going, going back to our trialists uh, a few years ago, we actually had a few, few other of the ex um, senior men's kite uh, team members. Yeah. Also trial out for the team as well. So yeah, plenty of crossover there. So though, I guess those are the type of sports, whether it's rowing or, or kayaking, um, you know, if you, if you do retire from that, I guess you, you could look at grinding as a, as a potential career path. Well, I think you've got plenty of career paths ahead of you if you, <laughs> if you ever want. But when it comes to, say, conventional training programs and the programs that you designed, whether for canoe racing or for the America's Cup sailors, but what pieces did you hold on to uh, in regards to strength conditioning? And which ones did you put aside? Uh, was there... Were, were there other elements that you brought in that were more specific for their needs? Mm, yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, very nice. Um, yeah, I guess, again, uh, for me, you know, originally strength, strength and power background. So, you know, sure. that, that, that was my meat and potatoes, so to speak. And then we go into these two water-based sports and, yes, strength and power definitely as, as a fundamental thing, like, strength and power and, and kayak off the start, the start position, uh, the first few strokes, that's where it's at. Same thing with initially getting the handles turning for, for the America's Cup grinders. But then you get into the, these other spectrums, which we alluded to earlier, is around the strength endurance, the power endurance. And um, that was something that, you know, weightlifters, they don't need power endurance. <laughs> you, you do one or two reps or one off, one off effort. So that was something that uh, was really, really new for me like we'd where i'd done a bit of that prescription in terms of rugby um but not to this level like not to the level where you know uh these individuals are doing sets based on time like you know you're doing you're doing you're bench pressing for sets of you know a minute or 90 seconds versus you know prescribing based on five reps five by five reps something like that so yeah that that was fascinating um but then again, with all that kind of work and the huge one for us and, and Touchwood, I guess one of our, you know, our proud points for, for Dan, uh, Dan Plews and I for the 10 New Zealand perspective was that we, we didn't sustain any major injuries throughout the course of that campaign. And um, I guess from a strength and conditioning point of view, that, that's something I always 
we always keep kept top of mind. And so with all that high volume work, which is still done at a, at a moderate high intensity, you know, we had to really balance it out with uh, making sure that these guys weren't uh, overcooking themselves through overuse injuries and, and those kind of things. So that's great to lead into because I'm curious, what are the most common injury sites for sail racing like this? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, was, it was fascinating because our um, initially when, when guys first joined the team, um, we, would, we would be getting a lot of issues through the shoulders, the ribs, like rib cartilages, um, the old sort of tennis, tennis elbow, those kind of symptoms would, would flare up and then you'd find that after a period of, um, you know, one or two months, once the body had become conditioned to that. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, doing, doing grinding, as I said, for up to two hours, I mean, that, that, that's not normal. Nobody likes that. No. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it probably took about two months for the body to adjust. And then once it adjusted, these, these boys were, were away flying, which was interesting. But another challenge for us, I guess, going from our first boat to our second boat, <coughs> um, if you noticed our, our positions on the boat really, really changed. So yes. our, our boys went from essentially um, a standing grinding position. So one, one guy on the pedestal, there always be two guys on the pedestals. One guy is by default always going to be grinding forwards and one guy is always going to be grinding backwards. That's just the way that the, the um, grinding machines are geared. Um, but they were in a standing position similar to how we set up in the gym. But then in our second boat, which we use for the America's Cup, based on aerodynamics. Um, we had the, the grinders, yep, in a, in a seated position, they were basically in these, these trenches. You couldn't even really call them cockpits. They were li literally like trenches. Um, and the whole purpose was to minimize air, air drag on those, those guys so they weren't exposed, um, being exposed up there. So straight away, they're in a, this compromised position of being hunched over in the pedestals. They, they're unable to get um, the same free rotation that they were getting uh, from a standing position. So again, the, their bodies had to go through this, this, this adjustment period once they'd gone from boat one to boat two. You know, they were getting a lot of issues through, you know, lower back positions. Um, yeah, so it was fascinating to see. Yeah, I can imagine a standing position, even though the arms are the primary driver with the trunk and torso rotating, you're still able to utilize a lot of the lower body, whether it's yeah. through, through some dynamic stability or static stability, but still your, your ground base. But as soon as you go into that crouch or kneeling position, you've just taken away a tremendous amount of, of, of effort or assistance in that. So I can see how much more concentration would be applied from, from basically the, the, the pelvic spine on up. So mm. because of that, when the, the hips and lower body kind of go on lockdown to act as some bracing stabilizer for this tremendous trunk rotation, did you have a lot of, uh, a lot within your program design, a lot of kind of hip opening, a lot of, a lot of movement in the legs just to free that up? Or what was it that, it, I guess, it, did you have anything like that as they transitioned into the, the boat that they won with America's Cup? Yeah, yeah, no, great, great point. Like, um, yeah, someday, well, we were, we were uh, prescribing like specific mobility sessions um, throughout the course of a week. And yeah, some of the guys, um, I guess, really, really did battle initially. Like we, our body types were quite, were quite varied across our, our grind 
and crew, I guess by default from their different sporting backgrounds. Um, yeah, so we, it's, it's definitely something we, we work closely with our, uh, our physiotherapist, Paul Wilson, and, and trying to figure out, you know, how can we, again, prevent these injuries? And um, yeah, I, I guess the, the, this is a philosophy I've always had across um, the athletes and teams that I work with is if I've got two options, I've got the option of having an athlete that's 80% um, healthy, but 100% fit and strong, so to speak, where I've got, I've got the option of having an athlete who's 100% healthy and only 80% strong and fit, I'd always choose the latter. I'd always choose an athlete that is 100% healthy because on game day or, or at their event, they can always, by default, pick themselves up to that higher threshold. But if, if you're injured or you're not healthy, there, there's no way that you can, you can pick yourself up. So I guess that, that's the approach I've always taken. And so what do you what do you kind of uh, attribute the the lack of injuries on the team to obviously program design being a big component of it and i'm sure there was fueling and resting and hydration being some of the major ones but were there some some elements within your program design that you could say i think that actually was one of the big winning tickets when it came to a reduction or an, uh, or almost no injuries yeah, I mean, I guess, um, yeah, from a, a technical point of view, I, I guess you could you could look at it from a, a training stress balance point of view. Like uh, Dan was was really phenomenal at, at monitoring the guys' uh, TSS or training stress scores throughout the course of uh, the campaign. So, you know, not only are we capturing heart rate and, and power output data from our gym and, and grinding based sessions on land uh, we're also capturing that data when the boys are out in the water for say seven hours so even though you know they're not you know you obviously you're not grinding for seven hours straight you're on the water you know sometimes you're on the boat sometimes you're on the chase boat but at the end of the day it's, it's still a stress like if you're out on the chase boat for seven hours being rocked around in the sea I mean I've, I've been out there Dan's been out there on the chase boat for that long and we're exhausted by the time we get back to land. Like we, we just can't wait to get back to land and we haven't even touched the grinders. So, you know, it, it really gave us an appreciation of how exhausting those days out in the water are. So as I mentioned, Dan did a great job at monitoring the TSS scores of the guys and we'd pull back the training load for guys that were really, really redlining it. And I guess from a holistical point of view, and this is, this is something I learned from the rugby environments is just, it all comes down to communication. So um, again, I saw it a lot in rugby environments where you know that you've got alpha males amongst, amongst alpha males, and nobody wants to be seen as a guy who's weak or is injured or can't complete a training session. So they'll often just clam up and not tell coaches or support staff that they're they're holding an injury. But that doesn't help anyone. So again, in those rugby environments, they were really great around fostering the, the openness to to share any niggles, give us heaps of pre warning because you can always do a training session but we'll modify it for you there's nothing wrong with doing a modified session because we're we're playing the long game here so that that's something that um you know we really encouraged with our, our sailing team as well is just give us open communication between dan uh paul wilson and myself and and the lads are really good about that you mentioned also like team building you you have this group of various athletes coming together some with varied levels of experience in sailing 
And so what were the things that brought the team together? Were there things that you were doing or came up with, whether they were special field trip events or something within the gym or on the boat? What, what was it that actually brought this team together? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, funny you mentioned the field trips. Like we had very early on in our campaign, you know, we, we figured that, hey, you know, and this was something that we had been um, approached approach to do by some of our, our more senior senior sailors around hey we, we should organize some team built, building events um, just to, to really gel the team together and we, we had some some great ideas uh, in mind for example as I mentioned one of our our grinders has um, connections with the New Zealand military so we were looking at uh, doing stuff with them around sort of really I guess, getting these guys in some dark places where they had to really pull themselves together and, and bond as a group. But unfortunately, yeah, COVID, COVID hit us and everyone else. So we had to, we had to can all that kind of stuff. And um, that was a bit of a red flag for me. I was thinking, you know, geez, we've, we've missed a real critical opportunity to, to get that going. And, and once the campaign was rolling, like, and you've got the boats ready to go sailing, you don't have time to do that stuff. Like sailing takes priority as it should. Um, so I guess what, what really brought the team together was the fit, like the America's Cup, plain and simple. Like, as I said, it's just something that is in the DNA of, of New Zealanders. And I think as soon as everyone knew that, you know, this is what we're, we're looking to defend, um, everyone just had that common goal to, to get in and, and just keep pushing in until the end. And obviously the entire country of, of New Zealand was just ecstatic. And they probably are still just buzzing right now, only a few weeks later, a couple of weeks after. Uh, what, what is that? What is that environment like for you to know kind of as you're walking down the street and perhaps you're, you're, you're seeing people talking or you're seeing the buzz and deep inside you're going, yeah, I was, I was a part of that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is still very, very surreal. And um, yeah, as I mentioned, I've, I've got the, the newspaper clippings from both our last two defences in New Zealand were 1995 and 2000. And I remember watching those as a spectator. And um, I always thought, wow, like, could, I, could you imagine just being amongst or in the centre of that when the boats come in and you've got however many people there were just cheering. And then, so when it actually happened for us um, only a few weeks ago, again, in Auckland, to, so to have a home a home defence was just absolutely crazy. And, um, you know, even even these days, like it's still relatively fresh, but, you know, we'll, we get uh, a lot of random or strangers coming up to even, even myself. I, I played such a small role in, in such an incredible team, but, you know, they might have had seen me on on you know, a snippet of the TV and there's, oh, you know, well done in the America's Cup. And it, I almost feel like a little bit embarrassed because it's like, well, it, it was the boys that were on the boat that did all the work. I just, we just told them what to do and they they did it without complaining. Um, yeah, so I guess even some of the guys that have have experienced, you know, greatness in different sports, as I mentioned, we had uh, Joe Sullivan who won um, the Olympic gold medal for rowing and, and actually we had our New Zealand sports awards uh, last week and 
they actually did it a little bit differently because of COVID. So they didn't do the, the New Zealand sportsman and sportswoman of the year just because there was no international competition. So they actually changed it to a, a decades champion. And Joe, Joe's moment when he won gold in uh, London was actually uh, voted as the, the sporting, New Zealand sporting uh, decade, uh, sporting moment of the decade, sorry. The public voted for that one. Oh. Um, so when, when we sort of ask, you know, those type of guys, I asked them like, where, where does this experience rank for you? And, you know, some of their responses were like, well, clearly number one, like, I mean, you can go overseas and you can win world championship titles and Olympic medals overseas, which is just phenomenal. But then to be able to do something like that on home soil in front of all your friends and family, that's such a, a unique experience. Um, yeah. It's really amazing. So one other question that I'm kind of curious about when, when it comes to boat design, obviously there's a tremendous amount of energy that goes into it and it's very fine science to the point where they were telling you most likely what the, the work output would need to be for the crew. But when it comes to the training room itself, were there things that were developed for specifically for training them? Or did you have to perhaps recalibrate something that was already existing? Did you develop something like physical equipment or even concepts that were not there previous? Yeah, no, uh, uh, we, we actually did. Some of them I won't be able to discuss. Uh, we'll have to keep those ones in-house. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's the the advantage of having such a, an insanely intelligent design team, which which would be the case across all the syndicates. Like, I mean, the guys that are involved in our team, Ineos, uh, American Magic, and, and uh, Luna Rossa, th those guys and... and women, those men and women are just phenomenal. Um, and I often joke to people, I said, you know, there's so many problems out in the world, you know, with COVID or every type of disease. Um, yet we've got all this brain, brain power, which is just dedicated to sport. I'm sure we could, some, you know, it's, it's madness. Um, but no, like we, we did, and, and they were really good with helping us develop. We'd come up with some crazy concepts, concepts and they'd help us develop them. And one of them, which I can can talk about, which is is not too revolutionary, but I mean, a lot of people will be familiar with um, the Watt bike. Um, you know, it's, it's quite a it's quite a um, popular training tool for a lot of team sport athletes. Just jump on the Watt bike, and um, the beauty about the Watt bike is it gives you really really accurate power measures, um, and that's why a lot of track cyclists or other athletes really enjoy using the, the Watt bike. So for us, when we had Simon van Veldhoven, who, who's from a track cycling background, um, he had done many a, many a grueling session on the Watt bike. Um, so he was in talks with the, the design team there and at, at the Watt, at Watt bike, and, and they helped us develop um, which other teams were also using and, and helping to develop, but a Watt bike grinder. So they essentially re-engineered one of those Watt bikes, pulled it apart, chuck some handles on it so then we can get some good comparable uh, data coming up from that and um, we were able to adjust the height of it so to replicate our, our setup on the the boat so it, that worked out really well and 
Yeah, it's interesting. Like when you're when you're in rugby environments, as I said, the watt bike's widely used, and we often use um, the six-second power test, which is which is just one of the default programs in the watt bike setting, and, and we use it as a, a player testing benchmark um, that's used internationally. So a lot of teams will often compare, hey, you know, what's your peak power on the watt bike? What, what average power can you hold? And then so I, I had a lot of ex uh, and current rugby rugby guys just ask me, hey, like. What do you reckon I could could I be a grinder? And and I knew what their peak power outputs were from their lower body. And I was like, mate, these guys are doing more through their upper body than you could ever do to your legs. And <laughs> um, and that that was literally, I, I wasn't being cheeky, it's literally the fact. Wow. And as soon as I, I said that to them, they were just like, oh, okay, maybe not. And that yeah, just blew my mind. That that statement itself blows my mind because I'm just picturing the thighs of rugby players. And, yeah. and to actually have a higher power output in the upper body for the sailors is that's just stunning. stunning. Yeah. yeah. So where is the future? Obviously you're, we're hoping that Japan is, is happening. It looks like it is. So come a few months down the road, you'll be in Japan with your team for the Olympics. Congratulations on that, by the way, congratulations on the, the America's cup win. But when you reach such pinnacles of, of success, in a career, it seems like everything else is downhill after this, unless you have some amazing goals that you haven't shared yet. So are you going to climb Everest next month or something like that? <laughs> uh, it's funny you say that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I was actually, I was, I was talking about Everest. It's one of my athletes a couple of months ago and she absolutely hates the cold. So I asked her, would, would Everest be ever on your radar? And she said, no way. Um, and then she asked me, and I said, I'd, I'd love to climb Everest, but <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm not doing Everest, but well, yet I'd love to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I guess, yeah, my immediate focus is definitely on, on Tokyo. Like, um, yeah, I've got a lot of pressure on that campaign there. Like uh, Lisa Carrington is, is one of our star athletes um, going across here, and she's currently the two-time Olympic uh, champion from London and Rio. So she's on track to um, defend her third Olympic uh, title in the K1-200. And she's also um, in a lot of other events with our other um, members of our amazing female squad. So yeah, the, the medal expectation there is, is, is quite decent. So there's a lot of pressure with that. And um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, there, there's, there's chat about the, you know, when the next America's Cup campaign is going to be, whether it be next as early as next year or 2023. So, uh, I guess that'll I'll recalibrate to that. Um, but yeah, it is a good question. I, I yeah. Well, I'll be around. I'll be watching, and uh, maybe just have <coughs> you back on, whether it's after Tokyo or after 2022-23. Uh, hopeful victory, because I'm definitely rooting for your team. I think Americans have had it long enough, and it's nice to see it in somebody <laughs> else's hands. To, to be honest, but Adam, this has been great. I, I really want to just thank you so much for spending time with me and, and, and just sharing your experiences and, and what you've been putting forth for the athletes. It's just, it's remarkable. And it's just, this has been a tremendous pleasure. No, no, thank you. Thank you, Rocky. It's been a great chat and uh, yeah, some fantastic uh, questions actually coming from you. So I really appreciate that. You got it. And this concludes another episode of the Zealous Podcast. I just want to thank Adam Story for coming on and tune in next week. When we have John Griffin, one of the strength coaches for the Los Angeles Rams. Until then, be good 
and we'll see you next week.